Hi, and welcome back to another episode of LiveWire's Rules of Investing. I'm your host, Patrick Polk, and today's guest is Dean Fergie, Director and Portfolio Manager at Cyan Investment Management. After kicking off his career at NAB, Dean founded the highly successful OC Funds back in 2000. Two years after leaving OC Funds in 2011, Dean was at it again, founding Cyan Investment Management in 2013, along with Graham Carson. Among Livewire readers, Dean is probably best known as the first fund manager to publish about Afterpay on the platform, a position that he entered at IPO and exited in October 2019. In this episode, he tells us how he handles it when markets don't go his way. He shares his view on several small and micro-cap Australian stocks, and we hear why he thinks it's time to start putting cash to work in the market following the recent sell-off. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Dean. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Patrick. Really good to be here. It's good to have you. It's been far too long, filling a few of the of the gaps left in my library of content of people who I've been promising uh, to come on the show for years. So I'm glad that I've finally been able to pr- to fulfil that promise for you. Um, well, look, it's certainly good to be here in person. You know, for sure. I thought this day may never come, but it's really good to be sitting here in a, in a <laughs> vibrant CBD having a chat. It's fantastic. It is. It is. Last time we were recording here, we did have a little bit of an interruption from uh, one of the, the dogs in the offices nearby. So hopefully we can avoid that this time. I don't think there are any uh, any dogs in the office today. So <laughs> Perfect co-working space. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Well, uh, let's start at the beginning of your career, at least, I guess. You've been in small caps. I'm not sure if for all or just for the vast majority of your career. I can say at least back as far as 97. Sorry to to date you a little bit there. (laughs) Um, What is it about small caps that has kind of kept you interested and engaged for all those years? Yeah, I mean it's it's been a long time now. We're coming up on kind of you know a quarter of a, a quarter of a decade, and really most of most of my working life. I think what I enjoy about it is just the diversity and the amount of knowledge you can gain, um, the opportunity. Obviously, in terms of getting the small caps right, and there's clearly risk involved as well. But I, but I think you know, when I started, I worked at NAB. And I started doing big caps and a lot of it was retail. And it was like, do you want to buy Colesmeyer or Woolworths? Do you want to buy, you know, BHP or, you know, as Rio when it was back then or NAB versus Westpac. And it just seemed a little bit mundane. And then I started working with Adrian Turn and the small caps, which is pretty exciting. Um, we went through the dot-com boom of, of the late 90s, which was incredibly exciting and then incredibly you know, humbling in terms of when it all crashed. But there was just always so much going on. And you would have seen it in the last year or two, like the number of new IPOs coming to the market, the number of placements, the number of businesses being acquired and divested and some going broke and some flying. It's just a really exciting place to invest. Not for the faint-hearted, obviously, but 
I mean, it just keeps me so motivated all the time. It's just constantly a challenge, and and I'm. I've learned as much in the last two years investing as I would have, you know, in the last 20 as well. It's just always changing. So it's great. I love it. Do you think that the smaller end of the market, you know, as a professional money manager, is it easier to find alpha there than it is at the big end, do you reckon? Yes, it is. It's also easier to lose alpha at the smaller end as well. I mean, that, that that's the thing. With with any investment, there's, there's pros and cons. The fact is, if you are looking for genuine alpha at the smaller end, it, it's way easier to find. Like The market's a lot less efficient. There's less people covering it. There's less liquidity. There's there's more of a, you know, what they call like that grey edge where you can find out something that other people don't. The fact is, if you're trying to analyse like I said, a Woolworths or a Wes Farmers, that is a comprehensive body of knowledge that you could spend a year trying to get your mind around and you still might not know it any better than anyone else. Whereas small caps, it's often you know a single business model and the like, and so you, you can get a little bit of an edge and get some upside. The, 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 the downside is you've got liquidity issues in, in that small area and that alpha can evaporate very, very quickly in a, in, in a poor market, which is like we've been seeing in the last sort of th- three to four months. Yeah. Uh, you've had some pretty impressive uh, runs over the last few years, some good boom times. More recently, though, things have been a little bit tougher for you. What do you do or what do you tell yourself when things aren't going your way? Like what, when, when, when you have a bad month, what's your process for dealing with that? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's a really good question, and I think that's one of the hard things about investing is how you deal with things going badly. It's really easy to be on a bunch of winners and high-fiving your mates and just checking your portfolio every day and seeing how much it's going, on, much it's going up. Where A couple of things I think I've got, you know, I guess, a historical advantage from. I've been through these cycles a number of occasions. I've enjoyed the thrill of making a lot of money, sometimes in a very short period of time. I've gone through the the soul-searching that you go through when when things don't go your way well and you you, you dust a lot of money very quickly. So that's one thing. You just know it's it's a part of the cycle of investing and so you just you cope with it. I say it's almost like um, you know a brain surgeon like that people say what happens if it goes wrong and, and you know you lose a patient on the floor those guys go well, it's just part of my job like it's not enjoyable but I know that it will happen over the course of a career. So investing is a little bit like that. Um, probably more importantly is is we know our businesses pretty well. We've got you know, direct contact with the with the managing directors and the, the CFOs and people in the business. So, when a stock's falling, you can go to the people that run the business saying, "How's it going?" And they will genuinely tell you, "Look, we're going well." Like we've invested in a company called Alcidian, and they, you know, the stock's been under pressure, and they're just saying, "Look, we've had trouble selling into the hospital network because they've been distracted by COVID and the like." But but everything else is going pretty well, and, and so you can go back to that. I suppose, anchor of what am I really investing in? Yes, it's a real business. It's not just a code. It's not a it's not a cryptocurrency. It's not something esoteric that I don't really understand. Understand what I'm investing in, understand the valuation, and that can give you confidence to to hold through periods where stock prices may not be trending the way you might otherwise think. Given the kind of sell-off that we've seen in the in small caps, in particular small industrials and tech, is it a good time now to be getting into those kind of stocks or are you kind of expecting a little bit more pain before we, we get to the bottom? 
Well, gee, I don't want to be held to this question. Do we date this? <laughs> 18th of March, 2022. <laughs> Look, I genuinely do think it's a good time for people to start considering deploying capital in the market. Like a lot of stocks, particularly the small end, have been decimated. You know, some are 50, 60, 80% off their highs. So if you want to cherry pick a few of those, I think it's a really, really good time to be investing. The fact is that... It's easy to look back historically and go, oh, that was a really good time to invest, you know, just when when COVID was starting two years ago. But do you think when we were about to go into lockdown in Australia, everyone went, now I'm going to throw a whole bunch of money to the stock market? Everyone was, you know, just shuttering all their investments. They they didn't want to know about it. And it was a perfect time to invest. And I think you've got to be increasingly contrary in this market. You've got to be thinking, you know, what is everyone expecting to do? I'll probably do the opposite. And and I think now if you can't convince anyone to put money into the market, it's actually probably a pretty good time to put money into the market. Absolutely. Interest rates aren't going to 12%. You know, there there will be – you know, there'll be a period, it may be in the next couple of months, where people are looking, well, I'm still only getting 1% or 2%. In the market, I want to make a bit more alpha. I want to make it just a little bit more genuine return. And I think they'll start coming back to equities. And, and you see it when when they start moving and people start thinking they've missed the boat, then it accelerates. So it, it may have already happened. We might have seen the lows, you know, earlier this week. It, it appears that way. So yeah, look, I, I think I never want to say, look, I'm going to pick the bottom. Like I'll ring the bell at the bottom. But yeah, look, if people that have got capital out there, I'd definitely be thinking about deploying some into the market. Do you prefer to take a bit of like a nibble as it as it's going down? You see, it, see it down another five percent, take a little bit more kind of thing, or are you go, are you more like go hard when you think you you've hit the bottom? I'm probably more of a a nibbler. That makes sense. Look, one thing I, I think private investors they want to buy a whole bunch of stock at the bottom and they want to sell it all at the top. Now that's great in theory. That's the perfect thing to do, but. It can't be done in theory. And so the beauty of the stock market is you can take a piecemeal approach. You can you can add a little bit to your holdings when it's going down. As they're going up, you can sell a bit. It doesn't have to be an all or nothing. It's not like buying a house where you can sell, you've got to buy it all, you've sell it. And so I think that's emotionally a better thing to do and also financially a better thing to do as well. Don't try and be a hero and like, I'm going to pick the bottom and pick the top. But if you're seeing a little bit of value, you've got some cash around, deploy it. You know, And if you've done really well, just take a few chips off the table. It, it seems to be sensible, but it, it's something that I don't think investors tend to do terribly well, whether it's fear or greed or a number of those things or, or just or logistically. <laughs> yeah, it's just oh, do, I can't be bothered ringing up my broker and selling you know $1,200 worth of shares. But you know, that's what we do as professional investors. We're looking at weightings every day, working at where they should be managed at a certain price and making those adjustments. I, I say it's like... It's like sailing a boat. You don't just set your sails and go, we're going over to that island over there and it's not a set and forget. Like there are wind shifts and tide shifts and you might might need to pull your sails down when the storm's coming and put them back up and make adjustments to the rudder and all those sort of things. Investing should be like that. It should be just you're always being a little bit, you know, you're trying to trim around the edges, which which gets you to your destination faster and safer. Well, let's get into some stocks. I know you watch IPOs pretty closely. 
I'll be honest, it's not a market I watch too closely myself. As a as a retail investor, it can it's usually pretty hard to get an allocation in any of the good ones. But I thought you might have a bit of an idea what some of the good ones might be out there at the moment. Are there any, you know, recent IPOs that have kind of stood out to you? Could you tell us a little bit about them? Well, the short answer is no, <laughs> really, because the the IPO market is just not open at the moment. Mm. You know, look, I, I saw one, you know, downstairs to um, a couple of days ago, um, a, a company called Hemokinesis, which is a, a blood testing device, which which looks, you know, quite interesting. But broadly, the IPO market's been shut for most of this year, and we've seen some really, really poor performances from ones that were listed late last year. You've seen things like um, the video technology company Bird Dog, which is which is halved since it listed. Um, before pay, the sort of payday lender has been just an absolute mess. I think it's gone from 370 to 90 cents. So I think most investors have looked at that market and said, oh, I don't want to know about it. Clearly, the, the rest of the market's a mess. And so I think for the moment, Companies are just saying this is not a good market to to target. We're not going to be able to we're not going to be able to tap the market for many funds at the moment. So unfortunately, it's pretty much closed. You know the the other thing I'd say about IPOs, which I think is an issue across the board, is is if you put your hand up for an allocation into a company that's got very high demand, you often won't get many shares, and if it's going really poorly you'll get everything you want. <laughs> so it's a bit like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't a little bit. So it is a little bit tricky to play. But again, like I think it's a really good place to, to look for investments because there's you're at a point in time where it's just a fixed price. So you can decide there's no market to be made. If you decide that you think it's good long-term, then it's a really good time to invest. And even if you don't get the shares at IPO, you can buy them when it first lists and you can get an edge. And there's been plenty of you know, great businesses that have listed in the last few years. You look at Bellamy's and the Afterpays and the like that have made their investors a, a lot of money early on. So whilst the market's closed now, I expect you know, certainly if we see a little bit more of a rebound in the market that it will it will open up in the next couple of months and, and there should be a, a backlog of IPOs that come to market that I think are worth investors, you know, casting their eye across because the valuations probably look pretty good. What about those ones you were talking about there that kind of listed last year and and have a, had a bit of a rough time since? Are, are any of those starting to look interesting to you now, or are they? Yeah, because the, I know with with IP, the IPO cycle, it kind of seems like the end of the cycle is always where all the all the lower quality stuff ends up. So is that what you were seeing at the end of last cycle? Yeah, look, I, I think you're, you're exactly right. That there was a bit of like the door shutting, and so just all the all the the, the, the kids in the class when were running out, and it was the the slowest ones were the last through the door. So there was an element of that, I think. Um, look, the probably one I'd point out is we put money into a company called Zoom to You, which is um, basically like a delivery service plus a software delivery solution, and and that's one that listed at twenty cents back in um, September. 2021 it went up to 75 or 80 and it's come back to about 22 cents their business we think is is fantastic like it is the new age that you order something online 
And you don't want to get it via Australia Post in the next week or two. And I think if you're lucky, if it's Australia Post, <laughs> exactly. Like a- Amazon have sent the benchmark. I don't know. If, you know I-, I buy stuff from Amazon. I think oh, should I do that? Jeff Bezos has got enough money. <laughs> But I know that if I click that buy now Amazon button, you know, my charger cable or, you know, a packet of tennis balls or, or a shirt or whatever I bought will, will be in my letterbox the next day. And so that's the benchmark. And so Zoom to you have got this courier network that are sending stuff across town, you know, within a couple of hours. And it can all be tracked. And they've also got a software solution that if you're running – you know, Patrick's T-shirt business that you can get your drivers equipped with locate to you their product and, and I myself as a customer can see where your driver is coming with a T-shirt. So it's it's a game changer and it's something that Aussie Park Post can't do because they're not going to be able to track their drivers because of unionisation and the fact like that. So, but that's going to be what I think is, you know, I think one of the – it might have been the head of Woolworths was saying, you know, same-day delivery is, is the new black. It's what people are going to expect. And if you can't ensure that through Aussie Post or whatever, then I think platforms like zoom to you are going to thrive. So that's one, a recent IPO that's trading just a little bit above its IPO price that, that I really like and I think it's got some really sort of compelling reasons behind it that you know people should should like as an investment. So no more uh, having to go to the post office when Australia Post reportedly tried to deliver a package for you. <laughs> no, well, it was interesting. I mean, another disastrous IPO recently has been this Step One, this underwear um, brand, which which I think was a dollar sixty float and went to might have been two. It was dollar sixty, went to like two or three dollars and has come crashing back. And, and you know, my initial research for that was I'll buy a pair of underwear from them which was was a great experience until I was calling them like two weeks later going, Where's where are my jocks? And they're like, oh they're they're coming on supposed to spend really slow. Like it's just not on. You're not gonna do that anymore. Like people's expectations have changed. So Absolutely. so that's sort of one that I like, yeah. Mm. You referred before, I was going to try and avoid making any reference to Afterpay in this interview because I figure you must be sick of, uh, of speaking about it by now. Oh, everyone's invested <laughs> in Afterpay, haven't they? <laughs> yeah. But well, you, maybe not anymore. But. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think you probably got a bit of, a better entry price than most. Um, but, you know, you uh, investing in the small part of the market, particularly in growth stocks and tech stocks, Obviously, a few of the stocks you tend to hold end up being, you know, multiple times, not just percentages that you're measuring your returns in. Mm. Um, what are the attributes that you look for that indicate that it, you might be onto a stock like that? You know, something – I'm not going to say the next afterpay, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, a stock that can produce returns of multiples if you're willing to hold it for the required period. Yeah. Um, look, it's a good question. And, like, it's kind of like the – you know, the, the holy grail. It's what everyone's looking for. And so for me, it is, I think, um, anecdotal evidence. Um, it is the obvious scalability. Um, it is, you, you know, if you're forced to use a product and you've got no choice, all those kind of, it's just really obvious stuff, I think. So let's take an example of like Domino's Pizza. You can pick up your phone order two or three Domino's pizzas on it that will cost you $7 each in some cases and pick them up in 10 minutes from your local store. Like that is, that's extraordinarily good service and that's very hard for your local pizza shop to to compete with. So, you know, that's you've seen that's why the company's been successful. Um, you know, look at, you know, people complaining about airport parking. It's so expensive. So 
but I don't have a choice. Well, why do you think airports are going for so much money? Like, you know, I invested in Transurban like years ago, back in the 90s when it, when it first listed. And if people remember, but the Tullamarine Freeway, you know, back in the days it was free. They widened it and started charging people. And people were like, how can they be charging for a road that used to be free? This is ridiculous. And I said, well, yeah, it's not great. Buy shares in the road and look how it's gone. You know, because people, they didn't have a choice in terms of how to do it. So I think those kind of, um, you know, it, it's kind of easy for people to understand. Back in the mid-90s, um, you know, one of my first really successful investments was um, Brett Blundy's business, Brazen, which owned bras and things and, and sanity records. And, and this was a time where CDs were going crazy and Daniel Agostinelli, who now runs Accent Brands, great retailers, these guys, was just rolling out sanity stores left, right, and centre, and really vibrant, really exciting. People just buying CDs hand over fist, and it was, you know, it went up like four or five times in a couple of years. So, it was those evidences that you're seeing people use a product and enjoy a product, and, and you can see the value yourself, or you don't see the value, but you haven't got a choice. Are, are really good ways to to look at investment, and, and yeah, you know, circling back to Afterpay just briefly, you know, you started. You could tell that a lot of people were using the product. So if you see that happening in society, I think that's a really good place to go. Maybe that's an investment I should start looking at. Well, I wanted to talk about a topic that I'm quite passionate about, which is craft beer. <laughs> uh, I know that you're invested in Mighty Craft, which in addition to craft beer, of course, also does spirits. I think they've got a, a gin brand and a whiskey brand and yeah. um, and a few other things along those lines as well. Craft beer is a pretty competitive market, though, I've got to say. There's a, there's a lot of people, you know, who uh, who start small breweries and and often don't make a lot of money. <laughs> what is it about Mighty Craft and the brands that they that they offer that appeals to you as an investor, of course? <laughs> yeah. Well, interesting. I'm not a craft beer man. I'm like a Carlton Draft VB kind of guy. So, uh, you know, it's a little bit, it's not quite within my wheelhouse. In so, terms you're more of, of a better beer guy rather than a, what's the mismatch? <laughs> not even the mismatch or, or the, the the ballistic or any of their, their brands, but they've got a really diversified brand portfolio. So, they've got Kangaroo Island Gin, 78 Degrees Whiskey. They own, yeah, the ballistic Jetty Road, um, Mismatch Brewery, which is really big in Adelaide, plus a number of venues, including the lot, um, the um, Jetty Road breweries, a number of other kind of, you know, Kangaroo Island um, distillery, cellar door stuff. So really diversified brand of products. Um, run by some really experienced guys like Mark Hazeman and his ex-Lion Nathan, ran uh, the Port Adelaide Footy Club for a while, uh, XCUB for seven years. Um, Andrew Symes, the CFO, has been in you know, fast-moving consumer goods for, for years, including uh, craft and the like. So really high-quality guys that are well-connected. Um, they've been through a, a really bad period, obviously, with COVID. All their venues were shut, which really decimated their, their revenues. Um, but importantly, craft beer is really competitive, but it's also very valuable. Like you've seen the acquisition of all these brands over time, the most recently being Stone and Wood, which I think you know the 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 numbers are about twenty five dollars per liter annualized. So if you sell a million liters of Stone and Wood, they'll pay about twenty five million dollars for for the that brand. 
Where Mighty Craft have really killed it is they've got this new brand that they've done with um, an influ- um, a couple of influencers called the Inspired Unemployed, who've got a massive following. They've got like a low-carb, low-energy beer called Better Beer that's got really retro kind of um, packaging, and it's just taken the market by storm. Okay, so in terms of anecdotal evidence, my um, son works down at one of the bars in um, Sorrento, the Ocean, Be- Ocean Beach Pavilion. He was saying, Dad, Everyone wants better beer. We've got it on tap. It's just selling like hotcakes. It's been sold out across the country in Dan Murphy's and the like. It's been ranged nationally. It got launched in November. They're going to do 4 million litres this year. So if you look at the annualised, it's about seven. They're releasing new products. So that alone is going to be worth, you know, potentially, uh, you know, like let's say, Fifty million dollars to to Mighty Craft, about half their market cap in terms of what they own of Better Beer, which is thirty six percent. So it's just one of those ones that's got a really nice diversified range of products, but one kind of hero product that is almost underwriting the whole performance of the business. So um, yeah, it's one that I think investors should also have a look at. We really like it. Sounds good. What about, I'll give you a bit of an open call for a, for a stock. You tell me about one that you like. Something maybe that sold off recently um, and where you kind of see a lot of that long-term upside. Is there, is there anything you'd want to single out? Oh, geez, a long list in terms of stuff that's been sold off recently. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Plenty to choose from. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, the one that we've probably been surprised by the extent of the sell-off is um, a software company called Alcidian. The code's ALC. They provide hospital software both in Australia and the UK, so patient management, clinical decision-making, paging, all that sort of stuff. So it's a really sticky client base. Like Once you're in, you're in, but it takes a long time to get in. It's kind of analogous to, to ProMedicus, which do um, imaging, which is now like a, I think a 4 or $5 billion stock. So it's been a bit of a slow burn for Alcidian, but the last few years they've really got some traction and the shares went from sort of four cents up to about 45. As they got traction, they've come back to about 18 or 19. We made a couple of acquisitions in the UK. And again, with COVID, they've had trouble getting that software into the into the hospital system. They've had trouble getting in front of clients and making pictures and the like. But more recently, they've started winning some new contracts. The share's about half what it was. They've got... 80 million bucks in cash on the balance sheet so they don't need to raise money. They're doing annualised revenues, sort of 25 to 30 million bucks, getting close to profitability now. So we see that business over time just continuing to increase its scale. Every time you win a new contract, you know, the revenue goes on the bottom line, it'll start seeping through in profitability. It's only capped, I say only, but it's, you know, it's about $230 million. So compared to other companies in that, area that are, that are operating on a global scale, we think it looks really, really good value. Um, so that's sort of probably the one I'd pick that I'm really surprised it's fallen so quickly. But again, they did a raising um, in, in December, so the timing wasn't great, a bit of indigestion, so that didn't help the stock price. So, But we think it's you know, a great opportunity and one, again, investors should probably have a look at. Well, that brings us to the end of the main part of the interview. But mm. uh, as you may know, there are three favourite questions that I like oh, to ask okay. every one of my inve- uh, every one of my investors, <laughs> any every one of my guests. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you got another probably five or ten minutes, we'll sure, get into I can hang them around, now. Patrick. Cool. All right. Could you tell me about a book that has been particularly influential on your investment philosophy? Yeah. So. Um 
like I'm an engineer by by qualification, and I've got more of a mathematical mathematical brain than a, a psychological or a, a creative brain, and so I, I really. It was all about numbers and facts and figures for me when I started investing, but the market doesn't operate like that. So there's a book that I think was published a couple of hundred years ago called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and, and the Madness of Crowds, which which talks about all these ridiculous manias that happen in, in, in the marketplace. And, and the main one that I got a lot from was the tulip mania of the 1600s, where just people went crazy for tulip bulbs. You know, they were going for like an annual salary and then overnight they crashed. Like it didn't make any sense, but it happened. And I almost equate that now to the cryptocurrency. Like no one really understands it. No one gets it, but it's going up. So we'll just invest in it because you could make a lot of money. Now, I don't know if I'm ultimately going to be right or wrong or this, but but it just seems that there is this psychological madness that takes over markets and, and it means that they move completely, I won't say irrationally, but not as anyone who's theoretical will always expect. It's like, that stock's too expensive, that stock's too cheap. It doesn't matter. That's just what the market's paying for it. So that's the way it is. So that book made me think, wow, things can get really out of line for you know brief or even moderate periods of time before they come back. So if you're that one going, this stock's got too expensive, I'll short it and I'll short it again and I'll short it again. You know, sometimes you've just got to sit back and go, I don't understand this and I'm going to not trying to bet with it or against it. I'm just going to stand back and, and watch the watch the watch the show. So that'd be the main book for me. Um, I've read a couple of Peter Lynch books I've re- really like as well. You know, he's um you, know, you mentioned him earlier, just really sensible guy. Again, talks about a lot of this anecdotal evidence with respect to investing. So yeah, they, they'd probably be the two that I, I'd guide people towards in this current environment for sure. Yeah, your uh, your comment uh, about the way you like to research uh, stocks reminded me a little bit of uh, of the Peter Lynch scuttlebutt approach as well. <laughs> well, it's just sort of easy and logical, and I think you know, again talking about how you cope with being in investments that are going down. It's like if you can put your hand on the fact that I've I've bought you know the shares in in this warehousing business or this logistics business or this retail business and I can see people buying goods and money transacting and 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 money being made then that's kind of a good way to to anchor your investment and not sell out at prices that might be stupidly low could you tell us about your biggest gain or loss as an investor what were the most valuable lessons that you took from the experience oh uh, look i mean I think it's more instructive to talk about losses. You know, everyone talks about their games. Like everyone tells you about the racehorses that they've bet on and why, but no one really goes through the hundreds that they've lost. Lots of selection bias. Yeah, but that's, that's where you, you know, that's where you learn, and it's constantly a learning process. So, I mean, two most recently, we we got in early to Blue Sky Asset Management, and, and then then lost sort of fifty to sixty percent of our investment overnight. But we but we sold out. Early enough that we didn't we didn't sustain the whole car crash. We sort of jumped out of the car as it was going over the cliff, as such. And what that showed me is, in any of these sentiment based businesses, and we were sort of discussing offline about Magellan earlier, is these businesses that where people lose confidence in it can unravel really, really quickly. You know, like you've seen it, you know, happen with anyone that's got like a, a Twitter account that that does says something inappropriate. You you can lose your career overnight. And these 
these funds businesses are, are based on trust, and then when you lose people's trust, they unravel overnight. So, so don't underestimate how badly things can go quickly. And the other one that we we had to write off completely was a, was an equipment financing business called Access Today. And there are a lot of these financing businesses out there that, you know, I sort of say you don't know they're going wrong until they go wrong. Like if I lent you 100 bucks, I can still say you owe me and it's still a debt until you decide you just can't pay me back or you're not going to pay me back or you disappear overseas and I don't see you again. You know, it's a, or it's a bit like, you know, insuring your house. Like you don't know it's fully insured until the insurance company actually pay you back. So – those businesses that are involved in, in in lending, and especially some of those ones that are involved in lending to really really low credit, you know, we've seen a real, you know, there's a whole cohort of businesses like we're going to target the customers that the banks don't want. Customers don't, the banks don't want those customers, probably for a certain reason. Now, you can have a book of of of, of debts that you think are okay, but until you try and get all that money back. You know, it, it could be a problem, and, and you've seen it also recently, like with Zip Money. You know, they're winding back their their credit criteria for their customers. I mean, that's saying you might have a problem. I expect so. So that's sort of another learning experience that makes me really wary about those those debt book businesses and, and how they you know can go wrong sometimes really really quickly. Yeah. Uh, one more question for you, but before I ask this one, I always like to insert a little bit of a disclaimer. Don't try this at home. We're not actually suggesting that anybody goes out there, puts all of their money in a single stock and forgets about it for five years. This is supposed to be a bit of an exercise in long-term thinking and hopefully a little bit of fun. So, with that being said, if the markets were going to close for the next five years, starting from tomorrow, and you could only own shares in one stock, what would it be? Okay. Um, yeah, interesting question. I know I've got probably no chance of getting this right, <laughs> but uh, look, I've discussed this before through Livewire, and I think it's it, 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 it kind of blends in a lot of the themes we've talked about in this podcast. So the company is Raise Investments. So I like it for a few reasons. It's it's very scalable. It's a for those that don't know, a lot of the, your you know listeners may know about Raise. It's a micro investing app. So if you want to invest. 500 bucks or a thousand bucks. Put in a raise account, you can decide between conservative, moderate, aggressive, socially responsible investment portfolios. It's all ETF, it's all very, very um, diversified, very low fee. They charge sort of three bucks fifty a month for investment. You can round up your spending. So it's a really responsible way for people to invest. And, and I can understand the, the merit behind it. Um, it's a very scalable platform. Because every time they just get a new customer through that system, it just drops through. Um, it, it's very usable. Again, like I try and uh, adopt the the business model of anything that I'm, you know, looking to invest in. So I opened up a raise account. It went really well. I had a few issues early on. Customer service were great. Fixed them up. You know, even recently, their main competitor at the moment is a company called Spaceship, which is invested in all the high tech. You know, US growth stocks and it's their portfolio has been decimated. You know, my raise account's gone down by kind of five to seven percent last few months. So it's, it's really diverse. So they're doing a really good job. And I think people are going to continue to want to invest and save. Um, there's still a distrust, I think, of the financial planning network. And, and you know, we've seen what's happened with the AMPs and the, the like. You know, there's 
it's expensive, it's hard, and, and I want to take control of myself. So I think Raise gives customers that that opportunity and that control of their own finances. They can check them every day. It's reasonably priced. It's transparent. It's a good offering. So that's one that I could see. You know, this this could grow significantly in Australia over the next five years, but also, you know, with their international arms in Malaysia and Indonesia, there's also a bit of an optionality as well. So that's one that I would actually be pretty comfortable just setting and forgetting until 2027. Great. Dean, thanks for ch- chatting to us today. Been great to hear your insights and hear a little bit about Aussie small caps. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Patrick.